The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Good morning, everybody. Happy that you made it through the traffic. I know there's just a lot going on in the cities this morning. So we've begun uh, a series of discussions, talks on the Buddha's teachings on emptiness, which, as I've been saying, is sort of a provocative topic. Um, There's something really at the heart of how the Buddha taught, what the Buddha pointed to, that is just seems counterintuitive or counter the way that we usually experience experience. And so... Um, if you want a complimentary text, we have some books ordered at Moon Palace Books, which is an independent bookstore just south of here. We have Guy Armstrong's new book, Emptiness, A Practical Guide for Meditators. It's just in hardback, unfortunately, or the digital, of course. <clears throat> so, But they will offer a 20% discount if you want that complimentary text. But don't feel like you have to have it. It's just available for people who want to do some study along with these talks that I'll be covering over the next maybe eight or nine months. And I mentioned last week um, that the the reason we're taking up this study, it's really a practical study of what the mind, what this mind or this heart is empty of. That's a useful way to think about it. Instead of somebody like me claiming that the world is empty, some existential or metaphysical truth about all things, it's more this pragmatic curiosity, like, is this mind empty of self-centered drama in this moment or not? Is this mind empty of craving or full of craving right now? Is this mind empty of fear or full of fear? So this is really the more useful way to think of these teachings. And what we find, you know, anybody who cares enough to watch, observe their mind, we observe what? Well, there's this very strong correlation between self-centered drama, self-centeredness, and suffering, right? It's like when you notice that you're having a hard time during the day, you can just ask, like, is there any self-centered activity going on? Any attachment going on? Self-centered attachment, struggling, grasping going on? And you'll see, you'll just make that correlation between the self-centered drama and the sense of me suffering, me being bound up, me, my heart being (coughs) heavy or hurting in some way. So the interesting question then, like if we do that work and we make that correlation so that we start to have a lot of confidence direct from our own experience, from observing our own experience, that suffering, the experience of me suffering, me having a hard time in life, seems to always correlate with my mind being caught up in some drama, some self-centered drama, some attachment then it really begs the question, well, what is this mind when it's empty of self-centered drama, empty 
of self-centeredness, empty of attachment, empty of self-grasping. One of the famous lines from the Buddhas, from the time of the Buddha, Ananda, the Buddha's attendant, I forget if I mentioned this last week, um, this quote, but Ananda, the Buddha's attendant, had heard the Buddha say something like, the world is empty. And so he asked the Buddha a little bit later, what did you mean by that, you know, when you said the world is empty? And the Buddha responded, it is Ananda because it is empty of self and what belongs to self. Right? The world, meaning not the world in a metaphysical sense, because the Buddha was always talking pragmatically, the world in, in terms of like the world of our present moment experience is empty of self and what belongs to self. So can we cultivate this way of observing, this way of knowing, this way of being in our experience? Seeing that this moment, like sitting here listening to me talk, is empty of self and what belongs to self. Because that's not our habit, right? Our habit now, as we're sitting here listening and whatever's going on for you in this moment, whatever experiences are arising, the very deep habit is to organize this experience in terms of what's happening to me. So it doesn't seem empty of self. Like, this, no, 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 this is happening to me. I'm at Common Ground. It's Sunday morning. You know, I'm having my life. This is happening to me. I'm happy or I'm unhappy. I'm this or I'm that, but for sure it's happening to me. This is about me. This is my experience happening to me. And that's our habit, right, of perceiving that way. And it's such a habit that we it's hard for us to even imagine that there's a, another way to be perceiving or another way to be experiencing this moment, like experiencing this moment or any moment of our life empty of self and what belongs to self. What would that moment be? It's like another version of the question I asked a few moments ago. What is, what is a moment of experience when there's, it's empty of attachment, empty of self-centered drama? What is that moment like? Do we, have we bumped into some of those moments? And you know, as we're beginning the study of the Buddhist teachings on the world of experience being empty of self and what belongs to self, and just working with that, not as something to believe in, but as something to investigate in terms of our own experience, he has, you know, there are some ways just to begin to open the mind to this study, to loosen the screws, so to speak. Because there, you know, the, the interesting thing about this very convincing sense that there is me here is to see how inconsistent it is. You know, if, even if we looked at just the last few hours of today, this morning since we woke, up, we woke up, the way that our mind has constructed the sense of a self, a me, is very different. It's like my knee pain. So that's a sense of a me that in some sense owns, you know, like the knee pain belongs to me, it's my knee pain, right? Or I'm happy today, or I'm unhappy today. So that's a way of constructing the self where we're the equivalent of the emotion that's present. I'm happy, I'm sad, or I'm 59 years old, right? So then in that moment, with that thought, it's like I'm this body that's 59 years old, or this body that was born 
59 years ago. Right? That's who we are. That's the ground of self, the attachment, and that moment. But these senses of self, what we're taking the self to be, when we just observe in an ongoing way, we see that it's changing all the time. How this mind constructs what I'm taking to be me is not consistent at all. It keeps changing. So again, this isn't some this isn't going to change our life, but it will loosen the screws when we realize that this thing that we're so 100% sure of, but it's not a set thing. It's like it's how that is making sense changes moment by moment by moment. Like the evidence that we would give to one of those crazy Buddhists who's saying, you know, whatever it is, it isn't a set permanent thing. And we go, no, 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 I'm pretty sure that me is set and permanent. It's like the same me that was born, same me that was a teenager. Right? There's a real sense of the continuity of me. Right? That's, in a sense, synonymous with any fixed sense of self is its continuity. Same me that woke up this morning, same me that's here now, same me that will be there later. But that's just a, you know, it's like people we sometimes, you know, put down or disrespect who have fundamentalist beliefs. Well, that's a fundamentalist belief. It's an unquestioned assumption in the mind. That sense of a me that hasn't changed. I mean, it's totally understandable because we've been conditioned to think that way and then so conditioned to think that way, it just becomes the underlying habit of the mind to frame or construct meaning in terms of a fixed self. It goes unquestioned. Even the sense of being the observer, right? It's like the one who's sort of back there a little bit witnessing what's going on, the consciousness, that seems to be steady. But it's an interesting question like, is it the same, like the consciousness, the awareness that's knowing that it's like this now? How do we know that's the same? Why do we assume, presume, that's the same awareness that now knows it's like this now? And what happens if we train ourselves, like the Buddha suggests that we do, we train ourselves that the awareness that is aware now, knowing that it's like this, why not train ourselves to see that awareness arises with the object that's being known in a very fresh way? This is a, a basic teaching in the Buddha's, like how the Buddha taught. And remember, the Buddha... He didn't teach this because it, he was sort of trying to convince somebody what is metaphysically true. He taught this because it loosens screws, right? It allows a human being to stop being a fundamentalist, right? And to move through life without fixed views about self or about anything. So this is just a little training because it's skillful. Don't even 
You don't have to convince your neighbors or your partner that this is true, that awareness arises freshly with each experience that's being known. And then that awareness, that experiences, experience ceases, and then another so-called awareness is there to know the next moment of experience, and then they go away. I mean, it's always an interesting question, like how do, how do we get from one moment to the next? And the way we answer that question is with this fundamentalist belief, where there's a me, and this me is there, and then experiences are coming and going, but me knows each experience that's coming and going. And the reason that's a compelling belief is because there is some kind of continuity between one moment and the next moment, right? Like this moment and this moment seem related, and they are because each moment is conditioning the next. But when we get very interested in the mind, we start to get the sense of how fresh, you know, one of the reasons that present moment awareness is so enlivening, there's so much freedom, there's so much energy, when we actually get some continuity of present moment awareness, is because of this sense of freshness, how alive, how things are actually arising and ceasing, being born and then dying. Each moment of experience arises fresh. There's nothing static. There's nothing fixed. It shows up, and even in the moment of its full bloom, it's already beginning to cease because the next moment, is, as it's ceasing, is being conditioned by the previous moment. So again... This is a very skillful way to understand your experience because it will force your mind to abandon attachment. And you'll learn to live in a more free, a more fresh, a less fixed way, a more humble way. If you see that it's happening, because it's like you notice when you're doing your mindfulness of breathing or washing the dishes or peeing or doing any of the ordinary activities that we do over and over again, what is the strong habit in our mind? I don't have to pay attention because I've been here, done this before, you know. so it's totally appropriate for me to be lost in thought because we have this fundamentalist belief, this is the same as it was before. Breathing in, God, I've seen this so many times, you know, or being with our partner or being with your dog or, you know, being at Sunday morning at Common Ground. There's Mark talking about emptiness again. (laughs) Some stupid belief, you know, nihilistic belief that we're not really here. How stupid is that? (laughs) Talk about, you know, the Buddha wanting to check out, you know, left his family, his newborn, you know, just couldn't handle being a human being, handle being in relationship, thought that being this wandering ascetic was the way and teaching emptiness, you know, that's lame. Or something like that. As opposed to seeing these teachings actually being in the direction of like how to be in relationship, how to be an activist who actually cares about this messy, complicated, unjust world, right? It's actually 
there's really no way to engage, to show up in our messy world without some intuition of emptiness. It just gets too heavy, too sticky otherwise. And we're compelled to react with greed and aversion and then denial and distraction in order just to manage the stickiness and the heaviness of the world. So the only way you can be a parent or an activist or you know, a lover of life, an engaged person, is without some, we need some intuition, some deepening understanding of what's actually true. This is like one of the things in Theravada Buddhism, this early Buddhism, the teachings of this person, the Buddha, they, he often would use the word deathless, I mean, it's sort of provocative, as a synonym for freedom or nibbana or awakening, deathless. right? And it just seems like, well, how stupid is that? It's like if one of the things the Buddha teaches that everything is arises and ceases. So then he starts talking about the deathless, right? But he's really pointing to the mind that's not attached to things coming and going, to the birth and death of this life or the, even the birth and death of one moment. Right? So deathless is a synonym or is a word that points to the mind that's not attached to what's coming and going. So when we talk about removing the idea of there being a fixed center, a permanent center in this natural unfolding we call me, right? It's totally okay to use the personal pronoun me or I or your name, Mark Nunberg or whatever. It's totally okay. We need that conventional language to communicate with each other. It's about not being confused because when we observe, when we train the awareness to be steady, to be clear, to see things as they are, we see this is a natural process. There never has been, there isn't now, there never can be a fixed permanent center anywhere in any way. You don't find it, you will never find it there. Right? People from the time of the Buddha, probably before the time of the Buddha, have been interested in this, right? and they don't find it. And in noticing what's not found, the mind, the heart, this life becomes more free. Love becomes more natural. Wisdom becomes more stable, more useful, more functional in terms of choices and how we engage, how we show up as a human being. All of that happens naturally as we get interested in this question. It's really the question, what's going on here? But we're taking the attention that normally is out in the external world, like how am I fitting in? Do people like me? Do you like what I'm wearing today? Am I saying something stupid? Is something dripping out of my nose? I mean, all these sort of self-centered concerns. And now we're using some of our energy of awareness to observe the mind itself, this reflective knowing of the activity of the mind. And, and just observing that in a non-attached, open way, no fixed views, looking at it in a fresh way, we notice what's not there. It's not like we see something amazing. What's amazing is seeing what's not there. 
we don't find the fixed me that we presume is somehow like a little bit behind my eyeballs or maybe you think it's down here. But one way or another, we think there's a me, same me, solid me, but it's just a persistent idea that arises over and over. And it comes with some serious baggage. All of the sense of alienation and separation that all religions have been trying to you know, address from the beginning of time, all of that comes from this mistaken notion of separation, which is an idea, a persistent idea, an unquestioned idea, so persistent it doesn't occur to the mind to gather direct evidence to see what is in fact the way it is. Right? So the Buddha, in the Buddhist tradition, there's some things you can just begin to look at to help loosen the screws. And I mentioned one already, like the issue of continuity. Just in a very, st- all of this pragmatic, straightforward way, using your mind to observe the activity of the mind and noticing how um, discontinuous all of the senses of self are. We have little dramas. Like one of the things you can do with continuity of awareness, like when you're in a little a little drama, a little self-centered storm has gotten triggered for whatever reason, there it is now. If there can be some of that reflective awareness, mindful awareness, then instead of like trying to get rid of the storm because a good Buddhist isn't attached or a good Buddhist doesn't get greedy or doesn't have lust or doesn't get angry, just observe it as a momentary sense of self, and it blooms, it unfolds, it does its dance, and then what does it do? It ceases. I mean, think about how many little or huge dramas we've had in our life. Innumerable, right? Where have they all gone? They have all ceased. Little storms of self-shame, you know, not feeling good enough. Storms of pride, thinking you're better than. Storms of this and that. If only, like think about how many if only storms, self-centered dramas we've had. If only I win the lottery. If only this person loves me. If only, you know, I get through this difficult time. But if we observe those little dramas all the way to the point where they don't they no longer exist in the heart and the mind. That's shocking. right? So you wake up and you really don't want to get out of bed. So instead of like making yourself get out of bed or telling yourself you should, you know, why are you still having to deal with this little you know, emotional drama in the morning, every morning, what's wrong with you? Just observe it because it won't last. Nothing lasts very long. But we just, don't haven't had the interest to track the little dramas and see that they cease. So this is just one training, is to start to notice ordinary dramas that you have and notice that they take birth at some point, there's some trigger, and then things are moving in the body and the mind and it feels like, yep, this is happening. It's like this, it feels very personal. But now there's enough wisdom to know, yeah, okay, Now it's like this, this seems to be me, this seems to be me, this seems to be self, until 
that self has died. But what happens is we start to get a little distracted and then the, the handoff, you know, where you, the, baton, the baton gets passed to the next self-centered drama, we don't see that. So you really want to catch that point where one drama has really ended. Well, that's interesting. That drama, that dance that seemed to be me is gone, exists nowhere in the space of the present moment that can be discerned. Well, that's interesting. And now there's this new drama, which is different than that drama. Well, that's interesting. And this really challenges the unquestioned assumption of continuity, that there's a self that's continuous. Another is this sense of independence, that the self stands outside. Right? And it's sort of, it's inconsistent because we also feel in moments like the self that's touched, that feels, that cares, right? That, oh, I'm the one who's hurting because something happened. But other times we feel like we're apart. We're just the observer. Oh, yeah, this is happening. This is happening. Like an independent agent. And Guy asks in this, uh, in this particular chapter, this is chapter two, by the way, he says, the observer does not exist apart from the observed. Right? There isn't, is there something independent to, what's, to the experiencing? Right? Let's put it in terms of uh, dynamic. Let's use the word, not like an experience, but there's an experiencing happening. And is there anything apart from the experiencing that is the present moment. Like, what is it that's here and now that's not the experiencing of the here and now? So we presume there's some independent agent, but again, it doesn't. It isn't found. Nothing stands apart from the experiencing. And then there's the sense of control. Like, if this is me, if this is mine, there would be some kind of control. But, and we do this, you know, they've done a lot of experiments now where like if I stretch my limb <clears throat> and they have ways of, you know, recording what's going on in the brain and kind of getting a sense of the neurological signal to move the arm. So something that simple. And they find that, you know, the arm moves and then the <clears throat> mental, the brain activity that's concluded, I'm going to move my arm. They find that that, conclusion, let's move the arm, happens after the arm moves. It's like the part of the brain, mind, that is keeping the self-story consistent is a little bit behind the game. So the life is living itself. Activities are happening. Engagement is happening. And then there's this brain process, this mental process, that's keeping a story that keeps us as the starring figure. I'm going to move my arm. But that mental activity, I'm going to move my arm, that mental choice turns out to happen after the movement of the arm so that it fits the story that there's somebody in control deciding to turn the light on, deciding to sit down, to stand up, to speak up. And again, when you train your mind to have this neutral moment-to-moment, present-moment awareness, 
you start to see these things. One of the real discoveries people have, like in walking meditation practice, is <clears throat> just little moments doing the walking. You know, generally on retreat, we go back and forth between sitting meditation, walking meditation. And then, you know, in my own practice experience, but also people reporting to me when they come in to meet with the teacher, you know, they'll say, I was walking, and then I notice that the lifting, the moving, the placing, it was happening on its own. And that the mind sort of realizing that it doesn't need to bother constructing the story, I'm going to lift my foot, I'm moving my foot forward, I'm putting my foot down. Like in the naturalness, in the continuity of awareness, unnecessary things just get dropped because they're stressful. And so when they do get dropped, when that neurotic, very subtle habit of putting the person who's in control, like constructing that idea that I'm doing this, when that gets dropped because it's a little stressful, it's tiring, and then the mind, the awareness, realizes the experience without the mind doing that, it feels like you should go in and tell a teacher about that. I mean, it seems like, well, that's kind of weird that the walking is happening without anybody doing it. That's, that's how people report it. Yeah, it was just like walking happening. And then at the end of the lane, the stopping happened. And then the body, the turning around happened. And then the starting of walking happened. And then the walking continued. And then it stopped. And then the turning. And it's like just a little glimpse or glimpses of seeing everything happening on its own without a sense of a somebody doing it. And people, this is not that rare of an experience, although people don't necessarily know how to interpret these moments of something happening. You're just doing something, something being done, without a sense of somebody being in control and doing it. But again, this is just like a a way to gather some direct data that challenges this very deep habit. And the last thing related to the first three, so there's continuity, the sense of independence, the sense of being in control, and the sense of singleness or unity. So Guy mentions all four of these sort of beliefs, these flawed assumptions or unquestioned assumptions in the continuity of a sense of me, in the independence of that me, that sense of me, in the fact that that me has some control, that self has some control, and that it's a single thing. It's not like two of me or three of me, just a one of me. And again, it doesn't really hold up when we observe the sense of self. We really see how it's like, no, no, that's a different self. But because the attention's mostly not there, not uh, sensitive enough, too superficial, we don't pick up like how many different selves there are, right? The feeling tone of the self is always the same, like this energetic sense of being apart or being separate or a kind of existential aloneness or tension of being apart. That kind of ache, right, feels, makes it seem like it's the same me. But that's... Just, it's like, um, you know, 
It's as if sensation, the visceral feeling of being tight. Yeah, tightness is tight. It's always, this is an interesting question, you know, if there's not a me, then why does it hurt so much? Why does my heart ache? Right? So we have to learn to look at that feeling tone, the ache itself, as something being known. And see that even that comes go even the most sort of subtle, wormy, existential ache in your heart, lonely feeling, anxious feeling, uneasy feeling, you'll see that even that, because the thing that feels most personal to you, whatever that is, if you observe that, you see that it changes. That isn't consistent. You might actually feel happy, light in a moment. Like, where is that? lonely person, you know, where did it go? Because the presumption is that it's always there behind everything. But it's not, it's just not true in our experience. It just seems like it's true. So this is kind of our task in these weeks ahead as we continue to reflect on the Buddhist teachings on what the heart, what the mind is empty of is to bring this kind of fresh, continuous investigation to really see, not try to figure it out cognitively by thinking about it, but just observing directly. It is possible, right? This is something we need to observe subjectively. A lot of people, like in Western psychology, we think we can resolve this by observing your mind or thinking about the mind objectively. But actually... As a human being, we're interested in the subjective experience of the mind. That turns out to be what's relevant. Not the metaphysical, abstract truth of the mind, but what does it mean to have a heart, to have a mind, subjectively, in and of itself, in our own experience? What is this experience of being a human being? What does this mean? What does it involve? What is it? And we with our mind, have this capacity to be reflectively aware. And as I mentioned when I began this series of talks on emptiness, the most astounding thing is that we have this thing we call the heart, call the mind, and we haven't been interested in it. It is clearly the most relevant thing in being alive, and it's astounding that we haven't been interested in it. How can that be? We have a few minutes before the children come in. Uh, maybe time for one or two comments from folks. Any thoughts that you have that, yeah, you want to start us off all the way in the back of the chairs? I'm, I'm Peggy. Um, listening to you reminds me that I've gone through or I recognize in part this, but it feels like a very painful maze um, that... You know, I've gone through, um, but at some point, I I felt that I needed to stop going through that that exercise of that existential maze, um, and to to pick something uh, a very singular path where you decide that you need to stop going through that exercise and and pick something to concentrate on and to um, 
go through a kind of pursuit of excellence where you stop trying to figure out so many things but rather um, concentrate and focus on one or two things that you that you um, decide are yeah, what you are most what's mostly me is there anything mostly what is that's mostly me is there anything in the buddhist teaching that suggests that that's a good idea is to yeah like focusing on love focusing on kindness and compassion can be very powerful and healing and stabilizing for the mind but the thing is just because it's important with this topic especially is to realize that even though we're talking about things that are really heady in a philosophical way, the training is not philosophical. We're using the mind. What are we opening to? We're opening to the way it is. Not our thoughts about things. Not our thought about whether the world is empty, whether the mind is self or not self. We're looking at the way it is in the most ordinary sense of that. So when we feel like breathing in, feeling the whole body, that's enough. Or just noticing, like we did at the beginning, the capacity of love, of friendliness, and how that can pervade the entirety of the present moment. So we're really working on a very simple way. It's always about the present moment as it actually is. We don't need any other laboratory other than the ordinariness of this mind and body in the present moment. And our thoughts about things are definitely not helpful. But that getting you don't have to get rid of your thoughts because that's just more thoughts. I gotta get rid of my thoughts. <laughs> but we ground in the ordinariness of uh, the activity of the body and mind being known. Right? That reality. The body and mind is being known here and now. Thank you so much. That was beautiful. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.